read ahead and read through chapter 10 of the book of Acts and we're familiar with this chapter and are familiar with the vision of this chapter that God gave to Peter of that sheet coming down out of the sky full of all of the different kinds of animals that, that Peter now as a Jewish person had been given the freedom to eat and you were excited to come into this chapter because you thought that the main point of chapter 10 was all about the food. If you thought that it was all about bacon, then you were mistaken. Sorry. It's about something even more exciting than bacon, if you can imagine such a thing. This whole chapter, including Peter's vision, isn't just about physical food. It's actually all about the true food. As we'll learn today, it's all about the gospel. Now, as we get into chapter 10, are you aware that approximately six to seven years have passed between the events that were recorded in Acts chapter 1 and 2 and the events that are recorded here in Acts chapter 10? It's a little bit difficult as we're reading through the book to have a sense of how much time is going by as we move chapter by chapter, but it's true. At this point, there have been six or seven years that have gone by since the ascension of Jesus and since Pentecost in chapters 1 and 2. And that's not just an interesting little bit of trivia. It's significant, and here's why. In the course of that six or seven years, as the apostles, as the Disciples of Jesus are fulfilling Jesus' call, His charge to be His witnesses in Judea and then up into Samaria and eventually to the ends of the earth. So far, up until this point, the church of Jesus Christ that has been born and is starting to grow and starting to multiply, so far, it is a church that is almost entirely composed of ethnic Jews who have come to faith in Jesus Christ and been filled with the Holy Spirit. Apart from the Ethiopian eunuch who Philip baptized back in chapter 8, which happened about a year after the ascension of Jesus, apart from that one guy, there is no record of any Gentile member of the church of Jesus Christ until here in chapter 10. Seven years, maybe, after Jesus gave the charge to his disciples to bring the gospel to the very ends of the earth. No Gentiles. Now, the word Gentile is, in the Greek New Testament, the word ethnos. We get words like ethnic or ethnicity from this Greek word. It's just a word that just means the nations, the people from the nations of the world in distinction from the people who come from the one nation of Israel, the Jewish people. See, in the Old Testament recording of the history of the world, God had a unique relationship with the one nation of Israel among all of the other nations in the world, and so they are referred to as the nations in distinction from Israel. They are the Gentiles. And here in the book of Acts, Jesus has made it abundantly clear right out of the gate in chapter 1 that his purpose is to bring the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of heaven and salvation through faith in him, to bring the gospel to the world, to bring it beyond the Jewish nation, beyond their borders, to cause it to, to burst out into all of the nations, into the lands of the Gentiles as He builds His church, as He redeems people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people. And to this point, in the book of Acts, six or seven years in, the church of Jesus Christ is, for all intents and purposes, so far exclusively only made up of people from a single nation on the earth. And here's what we need to understand here today as we come into chapter 10 where that ethnic boundary gets crossed now. 
and the gospel comes to bear for the first significant time on the lives of a a group of Gentiles, non-Jewish people. What we need to understand is that one of the greatest barriers that needed to get torn down so that the gospel could begin to transcend all of the ethnic boundaries was the barrier of sinful, prideful nationalism on the part of the Jewish people. The reality is this. The reality is that the people of Israel had all throughout the Old Testament period and and on into the days of Jesus, on into the days of the book of Acts, the Jewish people had developed and harbored in their minds and in their hearts a sense of superiority, a sense of supremacy, if you will, where they saw themselves as inherently better than all of the other nations of the world. And they looked down on all of the other nations of the world. And they looked upon them with great disdain. And they considered them all unclean compared to what they thought of themselves as. And as we dig into this awesome chapter here, Acts chapter 10, we need to talk a little bit about where that sinful impulse came from and what it was so that we can see how God dealt with it here in Acts chapter 10. So, very brief flyover of the history of the world to this point from the vantage point of the Word of God who created the world and is sovereign over the history of the world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And He made Adam and Eve, the first two human beings, in His own image. And they fell into sin. They did things their own way instead of submitting to God and honoring Him who made them in His image. And so, through their sin, sin entered into this world. And the entire creation became cursed by God, subjected to decay and corruption, and it has all been groaning ever since. And as sinfulness spread into the world through all of the offspring of Adam and Eve, through the human race who all inherited not just the guilt of Adam and Eve's sin, but but also the condition of sinfulness in their own natures from Adam and Eve. The sinfulness of humanity became so great on the earth that God sent a literal flood of judgment on the whole planet by burying it under water in Genesis chapter 6. And in that great flood, the entire sinful human race would have been eradicated from the face of the earth by the righteous judgment of God had He not shown great unmerited mercy to Noah and Noah's family on the ark that that lifted them up above the waters and saved them. And after the waters subsided and Noah's family left the ark, their descendants began to multiply. And once again, the human race started to spread out across the earth. And with it, the sinful fallen nature that still corrupted them, that still corrupts all of us. Even after global judgment, they still refused to honor God. Eventually, they all got together, Genesis 11, and they built a massive tower in a place called Babel. It was their sinful, idolatrous way to try to approach God on their own terms. It was was their own false worship that was crafted according to their own desires. And once again, God responded with judgment, this time by scattering all of the people across the face of the earth and confusing their language so that they all ended up speaking different tongues from one another and had to be segregated from one another. And so see, the whole human race, the one human race... Because of human sin and because of the judgment of God on their sin, became fractured into many disparate nations, 
all of which were defining themselves in distinction from one another and apart from the reality of God who made us all in His image. And out of one of those nations, God called a man named Abram. And He made a promise to this man that that through Abram's offspring, God would bring great blessing to all of the nations of the earth. Abram's name was changed to Abraham. And from Abraham came a son named Isaac. And from Isaac came a son named Jacob. And from Jacob, whose name God would change to Israel, came twelve sons who would form the earthly nation of Israel. And God had a very specific purpose for that one nation of Israel. And He established a unique relationship with them in order to accomplish that specific purpose. And the purpose can be summed up in God's words of promise to Abraham. After God had told Abraham to sacrifice his promised son Isaac up on the mountain, and Abraham obeyed, but God spared Isaac by giving Abraham a substitute sacrifice. You remember a a ram that was caught in the thicket. After Abraham's faithfulness, God said these words to him. He said, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And, here's the critical point, your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because you obeyed my voice. That was God's purpose, see? For Abraham's offspring, for the nation of Israel that would come from Isaac and Jacob... The purpose of God was to bring the blessings of God through them to all the nations of the earth. God set this one nation apart for that purpose. And in the book of Deuteronomy, God says something to this one nation, to Israel, that's incredibly important in terms of them understanding their role in this purpose of God to bring His blessings to all the nations of the world. Listen to God speaking to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. He says, You, Israel, are a people holy to the Lord your God. And the word holy means to set something apart, to dedicate it to a specific service of God. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you, set you apart to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. And here's why. Because you're so special. Because you're less sinful. Because you're more beautiful to me. No, 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 no. It was not because you were more in number or any greatness than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, and He doesn't just mean numerically. Throughout the history of the Old Testament, if you know, God goes to great pains to choose Jacob, to choose Abram to choose Isaac to choose Israel in spite of the fact that no one else would have chosen them. So that he can say it had nothing to do with you. It was in fact in spite of you that I chose you and loved you. It is only because the Lord loves you he says that I chose you. Bottom line, God is saying, don't think that I chose you from among all the other nations because of anything in you. Don't think that because I chose you, that makes you special and better. I chose you simply because of me, God says, because of my love, my choice, my promise, my faithfulness. God is saying to Israel, I chose you in spite of you. Nothing in them. No greatness by any measure that compelled God to choose them in not some other nation. They were no less sinful. 
they were no more worthy of God's favor than anyone else on the earth. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. I could have picked Esau. But I picked Jacob just because I have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, God says. God chose Israel in spite of Israel. And that is the great reality that we've got to get and embrace if we're ever going to understand and appreciate anything at all about God's purposes of redemption. The holy God desires and purposes to bless the world through His chosen people in spite of His chosen people. God set Israel apart among the nations not because of anything good, anything worthy in them, but simply because in His great mercy and in His sovereign goodness He chose, He purposed to bring great blessing to all the nations of the world through this one nation, in spite of the fact that there was nothing unique or special about the ethnic descendants of Abraham in and of themselves. And when God set Israel apart from the other nations in the world, He gave them His law, so that in distinction from all of the sinful pagan ways that the nations were living and conducting themselves... This nation, this people of Israel would live and conduct themselves differently in accordance with God's holiness and justice. They would look different. And in the law, one of the most visible ways in which God would put on display that His chosen nation was set apart and was different was in terms of what they ate even. And so in the Old Testament law, there's all kinds of of dietary prescriptions and prohibitions defining what they could and couldn't eat, not just because certain foods were unhealthy, not because there was something unclean about certain animals themselves, but because the nations of the world were in their sinfulness unclean, spiritually, and God wanted His people to look different even in terms of what they wore and what they ate. So from the way they dressed to what they didn't didn't eat, God wanted them to look different, distinct as His chosen people. Again, not because they were inherently better, not because they were superior in any way, only because in His great mercy, God chose to set them apart. God chose to bless them in order to use them to bring great blessing to all of the nations, through them, and in spite of them. But of course you know what happened, right? We're we're all well acquainted enough with the sinful pride of the human heart to know what happens when you set somebody apart as distinct from somebody else in spite of themselves. What happened was that they came to see themselves as better. God chose us because we're better. They thought of themselves as inherently superior to all of the other nations. And so instead of being filled with gratitude towards God for being merciful to them in spite of themselves, in spite of their sin, they became filled with pride. And instead of joyfully seeing themselves as as God's vessels, as God's conduit of bringing blessing to the nations of the world, they arrogantly looked down on all of the other nations. They treated them with disdain. They treated them with contempt. And they they wanted nothing to do with them. They didn't want to bless them at all. Even one of the prophets, right? Jonah, God says, go to Assyria and preach the gospel there. And Jonah says, I don't want to do that because you might redeem people. And I hate those people. They're Assyrians. They're they're pagans. They're, They're filthy. I don't want to see them saved. I want to see them burned. He was upset because they thought they were better. This was Israel's reality. In their sinful pride, they thought of themselves as inherently holy. Not just set apart by God in spite of themselves, but but set apart because there was something holy in them, they thought. Instead of recognizing themselves as equally sinful and mercifully set apart by God, And blessed by God undeservedly in order to be a blessing to the rest of the nations. 
And see, with that sinful mindset, they thought of themselves as more pure on the basis of their conformity to God's law, including all of the laws about food. The Gentiles, they thought, were were disgusting and unclean because they ate unclean food. And the Jews sanctimoniously saw themselves as better, purer, cleaner because of what they did and didn't eat. And all of that is important to Acts chapter 10 because that prideful sense of Jewish nationalism and, and, and supremacy is what Peter was born into. It's what he was raised in all his life. And it would be a major obstacle to the gospel going to the ends of the earth until God blew it apart, which is what he's doing here in this chapter. And in a lot of ways, we see that already, as a follower of Jesus, Peter is starting to understand the wrongfulness of that that pride and that haughtiness and that sense of superiority. Already, as the one who betrayed Jesus three times but then was mercifully forgiven and restored by the Lord, as an apostle of Christ, as one of those who saw Jesus ascend into heaven, as one of the original ones who were called by Jesus to go to the ends of the earth, we see already that some of Peter's old sinful, prideful sense of Jewish superiority is being being subdued and transformed by the love of Christ and by the Holy Spirit within him. One of those ways is in the very last verse of chapter 9 where, remember last week, Peter was in Joppa and he raised Tabitha from the dead. And it simply says at the very end there that he stayed many days in the home of a man named Simon who was a tanner. A tanner was somebody who worked with with pelts, with, with animal skins in order to make clothes and bags and wineskins and satchels and all kinds of other goods and wares that were used in the ancient world. And see, according to the Old Testament ceremonial law of the Jews, anyone who touched a dead animal was considered to be unclean ceremonially in terms of their ability to go into the temple. They would have had to wash themselves ceremonially to be able to go worship. So see, Simon would be somebody just by his job who was basically perpetually unclean. And it would have been unlawful for a Jewish people to, for a Jewish person to, to, to be with him, to stay in his home. But that's what Peter's doing. Staying at Simon's house for many days. And that means, see, that Peter's old fleshly sinful pride that would have caused him to look down with disgust, maybe, on someone like Simon, is already being softened by the unmerited and unconditional love of Jesus. He was already starting to get and already starting to understand that that all of those old purity laws of the Old Covenant were being changed now by God, now that Jesus had come to fulfill the law and inaugurate the New Covenant. Now, all of that old stuff was, was being made obsolete as Jesus had come into the world to give the Gentiles, the nations of the world, full inclusion into the kingdom of God. Because see, Jesus himself was the great blessing that God had promised to Abraham, who would come from Abraham's ethnic offspring, who would bring the great blessing of eternal life to every nation in the world. In him... In Jesus, there is no longer any distinction between Jew and Gentile. All are one in Christ. And regardless of what earthly ethnicity we are, if we are in Him, we are, Peter himself will say in the letter that he writes, God's chosen nation. God's royal priesthood, a people for His own possession. So see here, Peter's already starting to get all of that. 
during the first nine chapters of Acts, through the first six, seven years of the history of the church, and now in chapter 10, God's going to bring it all home for him and destroy any vestiges left in Peter of that old nationalistic Jewish sense of pride and superiority that very commonly caused Jewish people to look at other ethnicities, other nations, with a sense of partiality. So here's how God does it. Here's how He shatters all of Peter's old fleshly conceptions and assumptions and attitudes so that Peter can look at all people equally without any sense of partiality or superiority and bring the gospel of God's redeeming love to all the nations. While Peter was staying there in Simon's house in Joppa, up to the north in the city of Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius living there. And Cornelius was a very high-ranking Roman soldier, a centurion in the Italian cohort, which was a very prestigious company of the Roman army. And Cornelius had been stationed in Caesarea, the city named after Julius Caesar. And he had been given charge over the Roman army in that entire part of the world. So Cornelius, by Roman standards, was a pretty big deal. He occupied a a, a really high station in life. And verse 2 tells us that Cornelius was also a, a devout man, it says. And that word means that he was a very religious man. He wasn't just a worldly person. He was very religious. And interestingly, it says that instead of being devoted to the worship of the Roman gods like you might expect a Roman soldier to be, Cornelius had come to understand the truth from the Old Testament about the God of the Jewish people and to worship and to fear the true God, the God of Israel. Along with his whole household, he revealed or he revered the God of the Old Testament and he even gave alms generously to the Jewish people and and was continually praying to the Jewish God and they all held him, all the Jewish people held him in very high regard because of this. But even though he honored the God of Israel, feared the God of Israel, Cornelius wasn't Jewish. That didn't make him Jewish. He was Roman. He and all his family were Gentiles considered by the Jewish people to be unclean. They would have been looked upon with some sense of disdain by the Jews because of all of that nationalistic pride and superiority that that the Jews had always fostered in their sinful hearts. Well, one day, about the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon, which was one of the appointed hours of prayer in the Jewish religion. So Cornelius was praying. And the God to whom he was praying sent an angel to him. Cornelius knew it was an angel because it scared him. It wasn't anybody he, like, like, like he'd ever seen before. Terrified him. And the angel told Cornelius that his prayers and alms and devotion to God were, were, were pleasing to God, were good. And then he instructed Cornelius to to send some of his men, some of his soldiers, down to Joppa to find Peter at the house of Simon the Tanner and to bring Peter back to Caesarea. And so Cornelius, of course, did exactly what he was told and sent men to Joppa. Meanwhile, down in Joppa, while Cornelius' men are traveling down southward from Caesarea, Peter, on the day after the angel visited Cornelius, was given this vision by God, starting in verse 9. It happened around the sixth hour of the day. That would be about noon, lunchtime. Peter was up on the roof of the house. It was another hour of prayer, and he was praying, and it was lunchtime. He was hungry. And so the servants of Simon's house started preparing a meal for Peter to eat. And while they were preparing it, The heavens opened up, verse 11 says, which only ever happens in Scripture when God is about to do something really, really important and significant. 
And Peter sees this great vision of something like a a giant sheet coming down, it says, being let down by its four corners. Kind of like you picture the, the stork holding a baby in the sheet, right? And it's got the four corners and the baby's in the sheet and it's being lowered down. That's kind of what Peter sees here. It's being, it's being lowered down and the sheet is full of all kinds of animals. Every kind of animal. And reptiles and birds. Many of which were those animals that the Old Testament law had said were unclean to eat. Then, in verse 13, God Himself speaks to Peter and commands Peter. It's in the imperative. If you're hungry, rise, kill, and eat what's in the sheet. There's pigs in there. There's bugs in there. There's reptiles in there. There's cloven-hoofed animals in there. And Peter was surprised. He was He was probably confused. He seems to think that God must be putting him to some kind of a test. Uh, Maybe God thinks if I'm hungry enough and He tempts me with this and I fail, then, then He'll punish me. He responds to God. He says, no! It's It's a command. Peter, eat! Eat the pig! No! He says. By no means, Lord, will I do what you told me to do. I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. He's always obeyed all of those Old Testament dietary laws. He's he's only ever eaten food that was set apart by God and called clean for the Jewish people to eat. No pork for Peter. No shellfish for Peter. right? No scavenging animals or birds for Peter. No cloven-hoofed animals for Peter. The Gentiles ate that stuff, but Peter never touched it. So he tells God, by no means. And God's response was, what God has made clean, do not call uncommon. Now this process repeats itself three times because Peter's got a thick skull. Right? Something about Peter's stubborn heart requires things to happen three times before Peter gets it. Three times he denied Jesus. Three times Jesus asked him, do you love me? Three times here God has to tell him that bacon is no longer unclean. I mean, not that I'm any less stubborn. My wife's not here today, so she she can't contradict this. But not that I'm any less stubborn, but I think it would only take God once to convince me that bacon was good now. Right? The sheet's full of bacon. Go get it. Okay. If you say so. I don't need any more convincing. But, But Peter did. And to be fair to Peter, you got to realize how deeply embedded he's been in this Jewish piety for his whole life, right? This is a massive change now. This is a, this is a, a sea change that God is bringing him to now. A huge theological transformation that's going on here. A massively important part of the Jewish ceremonial law has just been declared utterly obsolete by God. And Peter has a little bit of trouble coming to terms just with the fact of that. That now that God has inaugurated the new covenant, those old ceremonial laws and regulations have been made obsolete. But look at verse 17. Verse 17 says, He was inwardly perplexed by the meaning of this vision, which means that he understood that it's got more to do with something other than just the food. It's not just about the food or he would go, well, okay. Okay, I I can eat whatever I want now. But he's still going, what's the real meaning? What's this actually all about? Was it really just about what he was free to eat? Was it really just about God telling him that all these animals were now clean? Well, it turns out it's, it's actually about something much more important than, this, than just that, which, which is why we're taking this whole chapter as a whole today. Because remember, God didn't forbid certain animals to be eaten in the Old Testament because there was something wrong with the animals fundamentally in and of themselves. 
It was one of the ways that God signified the spiritual uncleanness of the nations, of sinful human beings, and called Israel to live differently because they had been chosen and set apart by God. And remember, in their sin, in their pride, Israel had come to conclude that that they, that the Jews, were somehow intrinsically more clean in and of themselves, more pure, more holy than the people from the other nations. They weren't, of course, but they thought they were. They were just set apart by God in spite of the fact that all human beings from every nation on the earth have fallen short of God's glory. And so, see, it was that old residual sense of superiority that God is dealing with here. Ringing out of Peter here. So that he could finally see himself on equal footing with the nations. With all human beings. So that he could bring the same gospel grace of Jesus Christ. The gospel grace that God had freely given to him when he didn't deserve it. In spite of his sin he could now bring that to the nations on equal footing with them. So, while Peter's contemplating this vision and and contemplating its greater meaning, Cornelius' men arrive at Simon's house looking for Peter. And God the Holy Spirit told Peter to go downstairs where they'd be waiting for them and waiting for him and to accompany them without hesitation. And so Peter did. And he took with him some of the brothers, some of his Jewish Christian brothers from Joppa, and they all made their way up to Caesarea. And Cornelius was waiting for them eagerly, again, because it was an angel from God who had told Cornelius to send for Peter. So while Cornelius was waiting, he had gathered this big group of his family and his friends, a whole big group of Gentiles into Cornelius' house so that they could all be there when Peter arrived. And when Peter got there, Cornelius fell down before him as if to worship Peter because he knew that Peter had been sent to him by God. But see, Peter's, Peter's really getting it, isn't he now? He wouldn't have that. You can't worship me. Look what he says. I too am just a man. So like we saw last week, right? And Peter, no no need for self-acclaim, no desire to be made much of. But it goes a step further here and I love this humble acknowledgement of equality. Don't you love it? Like you, Cornelius, I'm just a man. I'm not above you. You're not below me. We're no different, you and I. And I don't deserve any special honor or treatment from you. See, that's the attitude of someone who knows that it's by grace that we've been saved. Not because we deserved it in some way. It's not of ourselves. It's not that we're special. There's nothing in us, there's nothing about us that compelled God in any way to reach down and save us from the wrath that is to come. Now in verse 28, Peter says something that might sound to us like it's kind of rude as he comes into Cornelius' house. First thing he says to Cornelius, Cornelius invites him into his house, Cornelius treats him with this respect, and Peter goes, well, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone from the Gentiles, from another nation. But see, it's what he says next that shows how he's starting to really get what God is teaching him here and what this vision that he's had is truly all about. God has shown me, he means in the vision, that I should not call any person common or unclean. God didn't just show me that it's okay to call pigs clean. 
God showed me that much more importantly, I must never call any human being unclean. That's what the vision was all about. Peter gets it now. See? It's not ultimately about the animals being considered common or unclean. It's him coming to understand that he, an ethnic Jew, must never consider himself to be better than anyone else. That he must never consider any person from any nation in the world to be inferior to him as a Jew. To be less than him. To be, to be beneath him. So, Cornelius in verse 30 relates to Peter how God sent this angel to him four days before. And and then in verse 34, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the grace, filled with the love of Jesus, filled with understanding of this great truth that God has taught him, says, I get it. Truly, I understand. God shows no partiality. All my life I've shown partiality. All of our history, my people have shown partiality in spite of the fact that God shows no partiality. He gets it. God does not, God never has viewed any person from any nation of any ethnicity to be different from any other. There's no partiality with God. Even through the even though the, the history of, of humanity has always been, been plagued with, with men being partial to one another. There's nothing new under the sun, right? Partiality has always existed in this world. It's not, it's not new to 21st century America. And it's not rooted in 21st century America. It's rooted in sinful human hearts. A sense of superiority, a sense of supremacy has always existed in sinful human hearts ever since Cain thought he was better than his brother and killed him. Racism, where people judge other people to be different, to be inferior based on some outward distinction. It's always existed in sinful human hearts. Hearts, but in the eyes of God, who made all human beings from all nations in His glorious image, in God's eyes there's no distinction, there's no partiality. And all of the differences that there are in the human race, in terms of, of characteristics of human appearance and human physiology, right? Tall, short, dark, light. Blue eyes, brown eyes, curly hair, straight hair, muscular, lean. All of those differences are simply beautiful displays of the creative genius of God who paints with many different colors and many different textures. So that His awesome glory is made manifest in His image-bearing creation through the diversity of that creation. God is not partial to any one ethnicity. Together, all image bearers reflect the brilliant radiance of God's divine glory. And now, Peter gets it. God shows no partiality. And neither must we. And so Peter says, in every nation... Anyone who fears God and does what is right and is acceptable to God. Only one problem. The Jews always thought that they were the ones who always did what was right, who always feared God, and so were acceptable to Him on the basis of their own doing. But they were wrong. True, anyone who fears God and does what is right is acceptable to Him. The problem is nobody does. That's what we all have in common first of all, is that we have all fallen short of God's glory. And so Peter goes on now to proclaim the gospel to Cornelius and to all of the Gentiles who were there with him in his house because in our sin, no matter what ethnicity we are, none of us fear God. 
None of us do what is right. None of us do what is acceptable to God. All of us have gone equally astray. All of us have equally earned the wages of our sin, which is everlasting death. All of us equally need the full and free and unmerited grace of God to save us from the wrath that is to come. Now Peter understands the true reality. Now Peter gets the true purpose of Old Testament Israel that's been clouded by all of his pride all these years. The purpose of Old Testament Israel was to bring about the birth of Jesus. Was to bring about the good news of the gospel that through Jesus, God is bringing peace to the whole world. Because Jesus is not just the Messiah of the Jews. What does Peter say there in verse 36? Jesus is the Lord of all. All people from all nations. And so for the first time, Peter preaches the gospel to the Gentiles here. At the end of Acts chapter 10. He tells of Jesus' baptism and anointing by the Holy Spirit, highlighting that, that Jesus is the one true God's anointed Savior of all the world. He tells of Jesus' divine nature and power over all the powers of this world, highlighting that Jesus Himself is God, the one that Cornelius has has been fearing and worshiping. Come to dwell with men and to, to seek and to save the lost from every nation. He tells of Jesus' crucifixion, highlighting that Jesus is the one who makes payment by His own blood for the sins of the world. He tells of Jesus' resurrection, highlighting that Jesus conquered death, highlighting that His sacrifice was sufficient and acceptable to God for the sins of the world. And He tells how Jesus' disciples were chosen and selected not because they were special, not because they were superior, but simply in order that that Jesus would have someone to be able to testify and proclaim that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. And that everyone who believes in Him, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done, no matter what nation they're from, everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through Jesus' name and through that name only. And when those Gentiles heard the gospel of God's love towards them in Jesus, they believed. The Holy Spirit was poured out upon them by God. And all of Peter's Jewish companions were amazed because now they saw, now they realized, now they understood that the gospel and the gift of the Holy Spirit wasn't just for them. It wasn't just for the Jews. It was for everyone. It was for the nations. And so Peter said, we got to baptize them. Just like we baptize people from all these other towns and villages in Jewish territory. There's no difference here now. The Holy Spirit's been poured out. We got to baptize them. And on that day, Jews and Gentiles became brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ there in Caesarea. And any distinctions that there used to be or that they used to see between themselves vanished. On that day, God had made it clear that the doors of His eternal kingdom were wide open to all the nations, to all who would come in the name of Jesus. So the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of all people, who is the only one, God's only appointed judge of the living and the dead, who is the only one who can and does forgive all of the sins of all of the people from all of the nations who believe on Him. The gospel of Jesus is the only solution to sin in this world, and it is the only answer to the specific sins of partiality. And supremacy, superiority, racism in this world. 
And here's what we come to understand about the gospel that's so relevant to our lives here. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not just some myth. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just some metaphor that can be adapted to fit anybody's narrative, anybody's preconceived agenda, anybody's broken idea of what injustice is in this world and what they say and the foolishness of their darkened mind should be done about it. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel is good news. What's the word news mean? News means noteworthy information about important events. Events. Highlight the word events. The gospel of Jesus Christ, as Peter clearly lays it out for these Gentiles, is all about events. What God did in human history to save lost sinners and make peace between Himself and fallen people from every nation in the world by way of the blood of His cross. The birth of Jesus, the cross on which Jesus died, the resurrection of Jesus, these are historical events that happened in actual history when God was born as a human child in order to reconcile sinners to Himself. And the gospel, the proclamation of these events, is God's power for salvation to all who would hear and by God's grace believe. And the gospel, this passage teaches us, is for the nations and is for outcasts. That's what Peter, as a Jew, grew up considering the Gentiles like Cornelius and his family and his friends to be. Peter always thought of Gentiles as outcasts, outsiders, unclean, until here when God showed Peter that he was an outcast too, right? That it doesn't matter who we are. What we all have in common is that we're all made in the glorious image of God and that we're all equally fallen, infinitely short of God's eternal glory. We're all outcasts in our sin. We're all outsiders. We're all enemies of God. By nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind, Paul says in Ephesians 2. But God, rich in mercy because of the great love with which He has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The Gospel is for outcasts. Peter's only problem was that he thought he was less of an outcast than Cornelius at some point in his life. And here now, Peter, fully understanding that he, a Jew, is no less unclean before God than Cornelius the Gentile, went to his fellow outcast to proclaim the good news of God's rich mercy and great love in Jesus Christ. So see, for us, what does it mean? It means this. Who are the ones in this world? Who are the ones that you know of in your life that you might be tempted to consider as outsiders, outcasts, unclean? Are there, are, there those, are there people in your life who you tend to consider unworthy of your time, your effort to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to? Do you have in your mind a, a certain kind of person that you feel comfortable preaching the gospel to because they're like you and they're not like an outsider because there's something better about you than that kind of people? Are there those who in the secret places of your heart and mind you think are are beneath you? So you're not willing to go to them. Are there those people who you're tempted to think are more outside 
in terms of God's economy, more outcast, more unclean in terms of relative holiness than you. Or maybe there's people that you think the gospel isn't particularly well-suited for, designed for. Those people are too far lost for the gospel's reach. Is there some inkling in your heart to that effect? If there is, and and you're thinking of, of faces and names as I ask those kinds of questions, those people are probably exactly the ones who God would have you go to, just as He had Peter go to Cornelius' house. Those are the people who God would have you learn to treat with impartiality, even though that's hard. To share your life with, even though that's uncomfortable. To share the gospel, love, and mercy of Christ with. The gospel transcends all of the barriers that we tend to put up between ourselves and other people who we think aren't like us. The gospel transcends our comfort zones and calls us to go where it's uncomfortable teaches us, reminds us that in the most significant and important senses, there's no difference between you and any other human being on the planet. We're all made in the same image of the same Almighty Holy God. And we all equally fell desperately short of His eternal glory. There's nobody out there. There's no sinner out there who fell further from God's glory than you. There are none who are cleaner. There are none who are more unclean than any others in God's economy. And God's economy is the only one that matters. None of us can ever say, can we? That there was something about us. Some special quality of our personality or our behavior or what we're good at that God found attractive about us and that compelled God to reach down and give us His grace. God saved us in spite of us. And God would use us as His chosen people to bring His blessing to the nations in spite of us. None of us can ever say that there's something about someone else that is unclean enough to put them out of reach of God's abundant grace. So today, let's pray together that by God's Word and by His great unconditional, undeserved love that He has shed abroad in our hearts, He would would constrain us. He would compel us to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to this world, no matter where He leads, no matter how uncomfortable it is for us to go. Because the bottom line is, isn't it? No matter how uncomfortable it is for you to go to a sinner out there with the gospel, it's not more uncomfortable than it was for Jesus to come here for you. To die for you to lavish all of us with the fullness of His grace and mercy and His love. Can you say amen to that? Let's pray together today. Father, may You teach us by Your Holy Spirit all of the richness and all of the depth of of what You taught Peter that day. Father, may You help us to see in our hearts if there be any tendencies towards partiality, towards a sense of superiority, between us and any human being in this world. And Father, by the richness of Your grace which You lavished upon us freely, undeservedly, in Jesus Christ who came to live among us filthy sinners and die on a cross for us, Father, would You root all partiality out from us and unleash great gratitude in us And a love for the lost in us that would compel us to go wherever it is that we need to, to plead with people to turn to Christ and live. 
And so, Father, we pray that You would energize Your church and that You would use us to go wherever it is that's most uncomfortable even in order to bring this Gospel to bear on the lives of the nations. Father, we want You to be saving people even here in Santa Cruz where the lights are going out it seems, where it's dark, where it's wretchedly sinful. And yet, Father, You have Your church here. And You would have us shine that light from the hill and You would have us go into this world and call people to repent and believe. So, Father, fill us with gratitude. Fill us with love. Fill us with urgency. Fill us with the Holy Spirit. Fill our mouths with the Gospel. And use Your church to glorify Yourself, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Take your bulletins, turn to page 5, and let's all stand together as God's people, as those chosen by Him because of His mercy alone, and let us sing, O church, arise and put your armor on, and hear the call of Christ our captain. Let's sing together. <laughs>